Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me this week. We are in Ezekiel this week, chapters 1 through 3, 33 and 34, 36 and 37, and 47. It's another impressive book in the Old Testament. So here we are talking about a man who was a prophet to Israel in captivity. Nebuchadnezzar has already come and destroyed Jerusalem, and Ezekiel goes with the captive Jews into Babylon and is called by God to be a prophet in their captivity. Messages are always the same as as all the prophets. Repent and be saved, remain in, in your iniquity and be destroyed. But God will not forget his people. He will he will keep his covenant that has been made with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will keep his covenant to Israel. He will gather them in the last days. So it's that same message that we hear again and again in the Old Testament and that we hear today from Russell Nelson about the gathering, the importance of the gathering, this great work of gathering, because this is a fulfillment of all the promises made throughout ancient history to the people of God, is that you can forget me, but I will not forget you. And I will I will send prophets to you. I will send a restored gospel of Jesus Christ in the last days. And the tribes of Israel will be gathered, and they will gather from every nation, those who choose to be God's people. And then this phrase is repeated in Ezekiel a lot, or a version of this phrase, that they shall be my people and I shall be their God. And that is the culminating effort of the work, is that that God will have his people, and that they will be resurrected. We hear from part of the resurrection here in Ezekiel as well that maybe you're familiar with, but we'll get to that in a minute. Do you want to say that, you know, some of the chapters that are selected here miss a lot of the repetitive messages again. We've heard them before, but let's not forget them, you know, that the wicked are to be destroyed. Now, this is not a politically correct idea anymore, and I just want to take a minute and talk about that because one of my kids was mentioning to me that in a Sunday school lesson, somebody used the example of Lot's wife as somebody who had, you know, looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah and then was turned into a pillar of salt. Maybe you remember, we've mentioned this in a previous podcast, that Jeff Holland gave a great speech called Remember Lot's Wife. I think it was one of the BYU addresses. And he used her as a cautionary tale, which is why she's included in the Old Testament, right? That whole story is included as a cautionary tale. And what Elder Holland clarifies is that she looked back longingly. It wasn't just some superstitious moment where God says, you know, nobody look back or or I'm just going to zap you. No, it's that she looked back with longing. She didn't really want to come out from Babylon or out from the world or out from Sodom and be God's people completely. She she was of a divided mind. I still want that summer cottage in Babylon, as Neil Maxwell refers to it. And anyway, the interesting part was that my son was telling me that immediately there was a little bit of a, you know, well, we shouldn't judge her. Why are we judging her? We shouldn't judge anybody. How do we know? She was probably a really good person. She actually followed, you know, the commandment to leave Sodom. And and then, you know, so how do we know she was? Be- and And I think that, you know, can we just hold in our mind that that this is one of Satan's great tools and it's it's rampant in our day that failure to distinguish between good and evil remembering of course 
that we leave final judgment to God. He is the judge. He has the only requirement that is necessary to be a final judge, and that is omniscience. He knows everything. He knows the inner workings of our minds and hearts. He knows the places we've been hurt or blinded. He knows the intents of our hearts. He knows all of it, and he will use all of that to make a perfect final judgment of each individual according to their acts and the intents and desires of their hearts. But we need to still make intermediate judgments or we can't use our agency. And if that seems to be questionable, think about that for a moment and maybe discuss it with a friend or family member or, you know, your kids. How can we use agency if we don't judge between good and evil? And that includes in a temporal, intermediate way, judging people. We don't judge people at a final level because we don't know enough. So that's off the table. And we should not be judgmental, which is another way we look at judgment sometimes in the world as, as a negative. And it is to be, to be critical of people or quick to condemn or to assume that, you know, we know everything about them. And so we, you know, think negatively of them or speak negatively. That's different. That's certainly prohibited by God. And that judgmental attitude sometimes I think has generated kind of a backlash where people then say we shouldn't judge at all. And that's a bridge too far. We cannot use our agency without judgment. That's different from being judgmental. And it's certainly different from making a final judgment, which is only God's to make because he has all the data. In our lives, however, we do have to make these intermediate judgments, even of people. And God judged her. God judged Lot's wife, which is why, again, the stories in the Old Testament, as a cautionary tale to us, that we not be double-minded, that we not try to keep our lives in Zion, and yet, you know, that summer cottage in Babylon is still something we visit. No, that you cannot serve two masters. I mean, this message is repeated again and again in Scripture, that, you know, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Or or uh, Elijah with the priests of Baal, you know, choose, you, you know, why, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, worship him. So, so there's this message throughout all of scripture. And yet now some active members of the church question whether or not it's okay to even make a, a temporal or intermediate judgment about Lot's wife or somebody else and say that this isn't okay. Now, I really am concerned about this as it pertains to our children, although at every age there can be a problem. How are our children supposed to stay safe in a world if they can't see and recognize evil? Again, not making final condemnations of people and not being critically judgmental in you know the ways that we ostracize people or bully people or whatever nasty behavior involving that other you know our interactions with that person because we're not being kind that's different but to make a judgment and i refer again as i have before to moroni 7 wonderful chapter where god tells us i give it unto you to judge and the way is as plain that you may know good from evil as the daylight is from the dark night and see that you do not judge that which is good of god to be of the devil and vice versa Don't judge that which is of the devil to be of God. In other words, see clearly and judge clearly. Use your agency effectively by seeing clearly good from evil. So here we're in a world where, of course, we can love sinners, but we must hate sin. 
And I think in our effort to love sinners, we have watered down our ability to identify, let alone hate sin. But sin destroys. And if we cannot help our children identify sin or evil ideas, evil behaviors, we are not fulfilling the warnings that we're going to talk about here in Ezekiel today about being a watchman on the tower. So let's let's get into it, but just just want to start with that thought. Evil must be recognized to be condemned and to protect our children, to protect ourselves. We can't be wishy-washy about it. We can't say, well, it's not that bad. Again, sorry, I'm going to go back to this one. Doctrine and Covenants section one, you remember this, the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants where God says, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. No tolerance, zero tolerance for sin. Well, if we're going to be like him, we need to not look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And that reminds me of 2 Nephi 4, that beautiful psalm of Nephi, where he says, make me so that I shake at the appearance of sin. How can we follow in the path of these great prophets, Nephi and all the rest of them, and Jesus Christ himself, if we can countenance sin and shrug it off? and minimize the evil that is involved in rejecting God's ways. And why does God hate sin? Not because he's harsh and condemning and judgmental and nasty, but because he loves his people. And sin destroys. If we love our our children, our stewardships, then we also need to raise that warning voice that sin destroys. So there can be no tolerance for sin People themselves are in their journey and in their path, and we can love and respect, we can warn as appropriate within our stewardships or when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and we can encourage and fellowship and invite, but not tolerate evil. Wow, have I said that often enough now? Let's talk about these first three chapters of Ezekiel. Basically, it's telling us about the calling that the Lord issues to Ezekiel. The first chapter is really a vision that Ezekiel has of these four creatures and the glory of God on his throne. And then in chapter 2, God talks to Ezekiel. Verse 3 of chapter 2, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. And then again, he says in verse 5 that he is sending him to a rebellious house. Yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. That's really important. That's really important that God is saying that I don't abandon my people. That's what he's saying here again. I don't abandon my people. They might abandon me. They're a rebellious house. They're not going to listen to you as a whole group. Maybe a person here or there might listen. But as a whole nation, Israel will not repent at this time. Nevertheless, they will know that there was a prophet among them. There's going to be a record. Ezekiel writes his book. It's a part of this tremendous witness of God's dealings with his people here in the Old Testament, the first covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament, where God said, I do not turn my back on my people. And I even send prophets amongst them when they don't listen. That's a lot of love right there. That's a lot of love. And we're going to talk again about how important that steward's role is to do what's right, regardless of whether or not there seems to be a harvest right away. 
And then he talks about how, uh, again, symbolically, Ezekiel is made to eat a scroll or a book, and it's sweet to him, and he is made a watchman to Israel. Let's see. Oh, this is kind of interesting. Chapter 3, verse 5. Thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and about hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely, had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. <laughs> In other words, I'm sending you to your own people. You know the language, you know their culture, you know these people. I'm not sending you to a strange nation that has a hard language to understand. But if I had, that strange nation would have hearkened. But in verse 7, but the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Talked about that before, haven't we? And then in verse 9, and he has repeated this a few times in these first chapters, fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. In other words, don't look to them for rewards. They're not going to be happy about hearing these warnings again, but that's not the point. You're doing this because I am the Lord God and I keep my covenant with my people and I will send stewards amongst them and prophets amongst them. Verse 17, speaking to Ezekiel, God says, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. And, you know, he goes on and repeats a theme that he's going to speak about in several other chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 18, here in chapter 3, When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked man from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. In other words, if, if these people were wicked and nobody ever warned them, and I had called you to warn them, but you don't warn them, and then they die in their sins, you're going to have responsibility for this. I'm going to hold you accountable because you could have warned them. And I even sent you to warn them and you didn't warn them. Now, this is a, a mandate to each one of us, right? Because we have been told that everyone who has been warned is responsible for warning their neighbor. We're all missionaries. We're all gathering, participating in the gathering of Israel or should be. On this side of the veil or the other, there's work to be done in our temples as well in gathering Israel, doing family history work. And, and getting the ordinances done. But there is a lot of warning still to be issued. A lot of that warning voice that is still to be raised to gather all those who will come. And if we did not warn them and they were not saved and we had the option or the ability or the capacity to warn them, then their blood will be required at our hands. We will have a responsibility. Can I throw something else in here about this? I mean, this is obviously a brother's keeper issue, right? I mean, am I my brother's keeper? Remember the question that Cain asks to Jehovah after he kills Abel and Jehovah asks, where is your brother? And his flippant, ridiculous, sacrilegious, you know, response to Jehovah is, am I my brother's keeper? But what's the answer there? Yes. The answer is Yes. We are our brother's keeper. Are we responsible for everything that that person does? Of course not. You know, man will be punished for his own sins and not for Adam's. And we each have responsibility for our own sins. So we know the point of individual responsibility. But God obviously establishes overlapping stewardships. 
I have stewardship for myself, but my husband has stewardship for me too. And my parents had stewardships over me. And I have a ministering sister and a ministering brother. I have a bishop. I have a Relief Society president. I have a stake president. I have stake auxiliary leaders. I have a prophet. We have multiple stewardships in the kingdom of God, and they are overlapping. So there are many people who are responsible for each soul, which is a nice and blessed redundancy. God is kind. He's saying, I'm going to have a lot of people that have stewardship over each other so that they can lift and fellowship and also warn as guided by the actual stewardship and by the Spirit. I'm just clarifying here. I'm not admonishing us to go out and call everybody to repentance, (laughs) but I am saying that where there is a direct stewardship, yes, there may be some times where we need to Raise a warning voice as instructed by the Spirit, as moved upon by the Holy Ghost. That's from section 121, right? Where he he talks about the fact that God will move upon us if there is a stewardship warning to be given. And thus again, I am my brother's keeper. So I'm going to mention one of the times that that sentence or that that phrasing occurred to me. Tad Collister actually gave a speech at BYU-Idaho many years ago, devotional address, and in that address, he said something along the lines of, you know, girls, let's, let's just face it. You get the kind of guy you dress for. And wow, that hit the fan and social media, you know, within these, this church membership group went crazy and really attacked Elder Collister, then Elder Collister, saying that that was all, you know, rape culture talk, blaming the victim, you know, that a girl is somehow responsible for how she's treated by how, you know, according to how she dresses and so on. Anyway, one of my sons called me up. I hadn't heard the speech the first time it was given. And and he called me up and said, hey, did you hear what happened to Elder Collister at BYU-Idaho? And so I read the speech and we talked about it. And my son asked me, well, so what do you think about that? And I said, well, to me, it's obviously, obviously each individual is responsible for what they do. If a man hurts a woman, if he assaults her sexually or in any other way, he is responsible for his actions. If he looks on her to lust after her, he is responsible for his actions. The gospel is clear. We are responsible for what we do. Nevertheless, in this system of overlapping stewardships, does she not have some responsibility? Am I not my brother's keeper? When did I get relieved of that you know, network of stewardships where I should be caring for my fellow men and women and my actions should demonstrate that. First of all, as a woman, I have a personal covenant with God to respect my body, this great temple of my spirit that he has given each of us, and to dress modestly as commanded. So that's just to begin with, that I should be dressing modestly. And then beyond that, am I not interested in the well-being of male-female relationships? Am I not trying to do my part to strengthen those bonds rather than weaken them and create sort of an enmity between us where it's like I can dress like a skank, but you you can't look? Like that, that doesn't seem to fit with this idea of overlapping stewardships, where indeed we are our brother's keepers and our sister's keepers. That is the reality of these overlapping stewardships. And if I am trying to make it harder for my fellow man or woman to keep the commandments, am I not accountable? God is saying that we are. 
right here in Ezekiel and many other places, this message is taught that we have responsibility for how we interact with each other. Are we helping to lift, bless, warn as moved upon by the Holy Spirit and support, or are we trying to make it harder? It's so tragic to me. I have maybe mentioned this before, but I've had over the years as a counselor, many, many men of different ages who are putting up a good struggle against pornography use. Like they are righteous men who are, are trying to eliminate a habit that usually started when they were exposed in their youth or something. But whatever the case, they don't want to be addicted to pornography. They don't want to indulge in that natural man appetite. They want to be clean. They want to be chaste and pure and to honor their covenants and their priesthood or the priesthood that they hold. And yet, you know, sometimes, and this is so tragic to me, as I said, they'll come and say, I am fully willing to be accountable for my actions, for where my eyes go, where my thoughts go, you know, how I behave in this journey of trying to be clean and pure. And then they'll say, but why does it have to be so hard at church? Why does it have to be so hard at church? Think about that. Think about that. Can we not Can we not have a moment of tragedy here and say, like, are we not trying to help each other? Whose side are we on? Whose side are we on, sisters? Are we trying to help the men around us to keep their covenants? It's not my responsibility whether or not somebody else keeps or breaks their covenants, but am I trying to help or am I trying to hurt? And I don't see where this adversarialism is going to get any of us. If I'm just going to say like, oh, that's rape culture and I'm going to dress in any immodest way that I want and you're still supposed to be really good. Well, yes, they're still supposed to be really good. Of course they are. And so am I. And part of my being really good is also honoring myself, my own covenants, and trying to help the body of the saints. Can one of us say we have no need of the other? Now we're into there writings of Paul, but let's not get too deep into that. All right, I went on my rant, forgive me. But that's, I think that's important. That's important. We have this stewardship. And here, Ezekiel is being taught this lesson. It's repeated in chapter 18. It's repeated in chapter 33, I believe. Anyway, several times in the book of Ezekiel, he's basically repeating this message from God that we are all watchmen. And that if we have a stewardship to help warn or support or bless somebody else, and we don't do it, then some of their sin will end up on our plate, on our heads, on our in our judgment day, that will be held accountable. Think of how often in the Book of Mormon, the prophets would say things like, now that I have warned you, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but my garments are clean of the blood and sins of this generation. That's what they were talking about. Same idea. If I warn, if I testify, if I witness what God has wanted me to tell you, and I give that witness to you, then I am clean of your sins. And I hope that you will repent so you can be clean of them too. But at least I'm not responsible because I did try to help. I was my brother's keeper because I am my brother's keeper. One wonderful statement by John Taylor on this subject. If you do not magnify your calling... God will hold you responsible for those who you might have saved had you done your duty. Worth repeating, let me say it again. If you do not magnify your calling, God will hold you responsible for those who you might have saved had you done your duty. Statement by John Taylor, the third president of the church, and one of my personal heroes. I think I've mentioned before that one of his mottos for life was the kingdom of God or nothing. 
<laughs> talk about being all in. The kingdom of God or nothing. That's how I want to be. That's how I want to feel and act. So again, again, in this stewardship, how incredibly important is it for us to magnify these overlapping stewardships? It doesn't have to be a formal church calling, although, of course, it includes those. But any stewardship given to us by the Lord, if we magnify it, we can bless so many people and give so many people an opportunity to come to the Lord. Again, it's their ultimate decision whether or not they do that. But if I am trying to do my part, then I I am not responsible if if there's someone that I might have warned and I didn't, or might have blessed and I didn't. I'm jumping to Ezekiel 18, which I mentioned a moment ago, and again, this is sort of repeated in Ezekiel 33, which is in our selected readings, but I just want to quote here a little bit from chapter 18, and you'll find these words familiar because they're verbatim repeated in chapter 18. But the idea is that People are responsible for their own sins again, but that if a wicked man turns from his sins and then becomes righteous, he will live and not die, speaking spiritually and in the final judgment. But if a righteous man turns away from righteousness and commits iniquity and so on, then all his righteousness shall not be mentioned. And In his sin that he has sinned, and in those sins shall he die. And then he says that people complain about that and say, the way of the Lord is not equal. And then then God asks the rhetorical, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? And then he repeats this same message. And again, in, in Ezekiel 33, which is in our selected readings, the same message is given that if you start out wicked and then repent, you can be saved. But if you start out righteous and then you turn to sin, you won't be. And and apparently people complain about that. But I think the issue here is that it's not a point system. And I think that that's really, really important to understand. God's not keeping score. This isn't about like how many positive points do you have or points you have in the positive column and how many points in the negative, and then we'll add them up and hope we end up in the black, you know, in the positive column rather than in the red in the negative. No, that's not it at all. It's not a point system. It's like, who are you becoming? Who are you turning into because of your actions and your words and your deeds and your thoughts? Who are you becoming? Some people struggle for whatever reason or have a period of rebellion or whatever, but if then they come into the fold, come into the kingdom, they come to Christ and they change their lives so that their actions are worthy and they become worthy and righteous, then that is the righteous soul. That's the prodigal son that comes and that whole heavens rejoice. And if somebody has been righteous much of their lives and done lots of good deeds, served, you know, in callings, done lots of things, paid lots of tithing, whatever, and then they turn into wickedness, well, who did they become in that journey? Yes, maybe they had their time that they were behaving in positive covenant-keeping ways, and then they left it behind So it's not like we're going to go back and say like, well, he gets this many points for serving a mission or this many points for going to the temple or this many points for being a Sunday school teacher. No, it's like, no, but who did you become? Who who did you become? And I think this is important for us to consider this, this lack of a point system. I think people kind of get stuck, strangely enough, in this kind of point system thinking sometimes. Well, if I do this and this and this, won't that be good enough even if I keep this sin or have this secret weakness that I don't worry about or don't try to correct. 
or grow in and, and repent. No, it's not a point system, brothers and sisters. This is about who we are becoming. It's about, about what choices we, we stick with and what, what we are as we move forward in our lives. No point systems. And this is not an unequal system. God is telling us it's the perfect system. It's his system. Chapter 34 now. Verse 2. Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Verse 5, they were scattered because there is no shepherd. And the end of of verse 6, none did search or seek after them. Therefore, verse 7, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 8, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey. In other words, they became vulnerable to those predators out there. And my flock became meat to every beast of the field because there was no shepherd. Neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. So in verse 10, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from the feeding of the flock. And then in verse 11, for thus saith the Lord God, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. Okay, just a couple of words about shepherds here who don't feed their flocks. This is a pretty powerful warning. Again, the Lord will hold us accountable if we had this stewardship. Another way of saying what we've talked about already. And I and I am going to just focus on two particular callings. First, parents. Again, always, as parents, do we have this responsibility. Now, that shifts as our children become adults. Adult children may come to us for counsel, but we don't have the same responsibility to go and try to tell them what to do. And sometimes in not passing the baton as they become older teenagers, and then certainly as young adults who've left our home, we can almost push them away from the gospel by by trying to pull or hold onto them too tightly, if you know what I mean. There is a shift in the in the stewardship of a of a parent when the child becomes an adult. And we need to honor that as our leaders have told us again and again, yes, we teach correct principles, but we also honor agency. We have to honor that people ultimately make their own choices as they are capable of of making those choices and of an age to do so. That doesn't mean we don't care. That doesn't mean that we're not available. But we have taught them, hopefully. And if we did our job as shepherds and as watchmen, we taught the gospel of Jesus Christ to our children. And yes, in those formative years, and particularly until they launch, we are responsible for making sure we feed the sheep of the Lord in our own homes and in our own families. Everything is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, every action, every interaction, every experience in life has a gospel lesson in it. Are we, are we talking to our children about these things? Remember that beautiful verse in Deuteronomy that says, you know, thou shalt speak of these things unto thy children when thou risest up and thou liest down and when thou walkest by the way. In other words, always, are we always talking about how these things pertain to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And not in a preachy, I'm going to hit you over the head way and bore you to death with lectures. That's not the way, but in a sharing way, in a testifying way, in an excited way where it's like, this is the best stuff on the planet. These are the best 
truths available to all of us and they can can be an enormous benefit and blessing for our whole lives because we know who the Lord is and we know what he commands of his people so that he may bless them in the ways that he desires. This is this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we sharing it sufficiently and unapologetically to our children? Hopefully it's not just a, well, now it's Sunday, let's talk about it, or now it's family home evening, let's talk about it, or even just at scripture time. But as we rise up, as we lie down, as we walk by the way, or maybe that means when we're running errands in the car, which so many of us do with our children for a certain season, however that is, let us at the dinner table for sure. And maybe you've seen those studies that families that have dinner together tend to have better outcomes for their children. And it is so clear a connection that every single additional dinner, family dinner that a family has per week is associated with increased positive outcomes. For instance, they've shown a clear association between the number of family dinners that a family has and the likelihood that the children will become involved in drinking alcohol. And what they find is that even having like one family dinner per week is associated with a slightly reduced risk of the child drinking. Two dinners a week reduces the likelihood even more that the child will become a drinker. A third dinner per week decreases those chances, reduces those chances further. A fourth reduces them even more. A fifth reduces them even more. You get the idea here? (laughs) In other words, can you imagine the value of having family dinners? And why? Not because you sit there and just watch each other eat, but because you're sharing. That's the underlying assumption here. It's not just about eating food together. It is about detoxifying your day, sharing with each other what's happened, and putting things within the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can see clearly how the experiences of our of our current day can can help us to have additional witnesses of the love of God of the truthfulness of his commandments of the blessings that are to be had by those who follow in his way all right enough about family dinners let's go on uh, the other role i want to mention though is young men and young women leaders and anybody who interacts with the youth in sunday school or in those young women's and young men's programs, as well as seminary teachers. So what am I saying here? What I'm saying is that I, and, and I'm making a plea here, and I it is not my intention to offend anybody, so I hope you're not going to be offended, but I am very concerned about, and for many years that I've had this concern, how much we seem to seek to entertain our youth. I don't understand it. I don't understand what we think the point of these interactions with our youth are, whether it's seminary or young men's or young women's. It's less likely in seminary because you're actually supposed to cover a lot of scriptural curriculum. But even there, sometimes seminaries become, you know, sort of game times or, you know, there are a lot of activities. I've told you a story about that before, which I may remember again here in a moment, but or remind you of again in a moment. At any rate, we see this a lot with the young men and the young women that we try to, to have fun with them. And even although I know that the the youth are supposed to be the leaders and the adults are supposed to be like the shadow leaders and supportive uh, leadership, but letting the kids determine some of their activities. And while, of course, we want them to have that experience, if we let the blind lead the blind, we're both going to fall in a ditch, right? So it's not about just like, well, what do you guys want to do? And then they just choose parties or fun activities or whatever, whatever they think is going to be fun. 
because then the point of those programs is just entertainment. Can I just point out the obvious? Since we have standards in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to which we should adhere, we're never going to win the battle of entertainment because the world stands ready to entertain them even beyond those standards. They have no limits as to what they'll do to entice or titillate or stimulate or tempt our youth. So if we're trying to win this battle for our youth by having lots of fun in our youth activities, we're going to lose every time because we have to stop short of violating standards. The world won't stop there. The world will go even further to entice and tempt and entertain. So why are we trying to fight a a battle we'll never win? And what kind of a battle is that anyway? When what we have to offer is the virtue of the word. Remember this... (laughs) Alma sees all this trouble in his people, and he says, I thought we should try the virtue of the word, because the word is powerful, more powerful than the sword. We want to win battles. It's with truth. It's with the gospel of Jesus Christ in its doctrinal beauty and doctrinal power. The power of the spirit that comes by teaching the word in its plainness, and in its context, and its complete beauty. But brothers and sisters, entertaining? We'll never win that battle, and we'll lose the souls. But if we teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, now, are they going to be as entertained by that? No. It's not about entertainment. It's about sharing and witnessing and being another witness, being a shepherd that feeds the flock, just as we're commanded to do. And condemned if we don't. The Lord condemns us as shepherds if we don't feed the flock, if we're just trying to entertain the flock. That's not God's way. But if we teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, at least they'll know where to come when they're interested. If they're not interested right away, and you know what? Surprisingly, many of them are. It shouldn't be that surprising because the gospel is amazing. But even if some act like they're not interested, at least When they wander, they'll know where to come back to if they're interested in truth. But if all we do is entertain them, they won't even know where to come. So my little story that I probably shared before, so forgive me if this is a repeat, but I was teaching early morning seminary one year and had a new girl that came into the class and joined us and and had moved from another state. So a couple of weeks later, I was just sort of checking up on her and saying, how are you doing? You're making friends and stuff like that. How do you like it here? And I asked how she was doing with seminary, and she said, well, okay, I guess, but are we going to play games? And I said, no, not really. (laughs) We're we're pretty much in the scriptures every day. I had one scripture mastery basketball game that was pretty fun, and it actually helped to remember the scriptures, so we did that like once a quarter, but that was it. And I had a purpose, but at any rate, no. I said, we're going to really be in the scriptures. The scriptures are pretty amazing, so that's how we're going to do it, but I said, there's another junior class. If you'd like to try that out, you're welcome to go try the other class. I won't be offended, I promise. Anyway, she was like, okay. And I don't remember if you tried the other class or not. But at the end of the year, we were both at a seminary graduation activity. And she came up and she liked the class. And she said, can I take a class from you next year? Because I can't believe how much I learned about the scriptures. It was such a sweet little moment. You know, they don't always come back and talk to you. So that was <laughs> that was a little gift. But I was like, look how wonderful that is. She at first was kind of like, this isn't all that fun. We're not playing games. 
But because we were in the scriptures and we were talking about these plain and precious truths that have such powerful application in our lives, increasingly as the world falls apart, she actually came to love it and she wanted more. And she knew where to find it, brothers and sisters, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us never, never become shepherds who do not feed the flock. And feeding them is teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to talk about chapter 37 now, getting close to the end of Ezekiel here, or the end of our readings anyway. I think I mentioned this phrase before. We see it at least twice here in Ezekiel 37, speaking of the end of the restoration. So shall they be my people and I will be their God. That's at the end of verse 23. Then again, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Verse 27, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what God wants. He wants this eternal covenant relationship with us where we are his people and he is our God. In fact, President Nelson, in a speech given to a training meeting given before the previous conference, mentioned this special covenant relationship and used a Hebrew word called hesed, H-E-S-E-D. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a beautiful article that you can find in the Liahona for this month. October, and it talks about this, this relationship, this special love that is between God and his covenant people that translated in a way that is imperfect because apparently there is a much more rich and beautiful meaning to the Hebrew word, but the closest translation they could find in English was loving kindness, this, this tender loving kindness that is felt toward people in a covenant relationship. This is what God wants with us. He wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people, that he can have this loving kindness toward us. Now, of course, earlier in chapter 37 of Ezekiel is a very familiar scene, probably to many of you, who may have sung that fun little song when you were kids about dry bones. Remember, because he sees this, this huge land that is covered with bones, an open valley, and they were very dry. So here's, here's this dry valley, and these bones are all over. So we're looking again at chapter 37, verse 3. Speaking to Ezekiel, the Lord says, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And verse 4, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And then you'll have sinews and flesh and skin, and, and you'll live again. So this, this is a prophecy of the resurrection, of course. And then in verse 7, there's a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. Now this is where we get that fun little song, the head bones connect to the neck bone. I don't remember if I'm going up or down. I start at the feet or the head, I forget, but the neck is connected to the shoulder bone anyway. And this comes from Ezekiel 37. You bones, you bones, you dry bones, now hear the word of the Lord. Anyway, there we go. You can sing this song all week as you're studying Ezekiel, because this is his vision that all these bones shall come together bone to bone and then joint and sinew and skin and breath, and they shall live again. And they shall be God's people. 
Verse 13, you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, verse 14, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. And again, why? Because this is this fulfillment, this fulfillment that God has always wanted. He's given us this earthly experience in order that we can choose what level of his blessings we choose to receive, that we are willing to receive and we prepare to receive, but God will be good to all and all will get more than they than they deserve. And then this powerful prophecy also went in chapter 37, verse 16, moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, and then another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companions. Verse 17, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. So we know that the stick of Joseph is a record. It is a book. It is a witness of Jesus Christ, and that is the Bible, the stick of Judah that is brought forth from the Jews. It is the record of the Jews. That is the stick of Judah. The stick of Joseph done by Ephraim is what? It's the Book of Mormon. That's the Book of Mormon. The stick of Ephraim is really from the house of Joseph, and that is the branch that was broken off that came to the New World, Lehi and his family, that come and are commanded to give a record. Going to right to the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 29, the last, I guess it's three verses, chapter 29 of 2 Nephi, starting with verse 12. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it, and I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away. And who are those? Those are the ten tribes. The ten tribes also will be spoken to by God, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all the nations of the earth, and they shall write it. So there are lots of records that are witnesses out there. Then verse 13 of 2 Nephi 29, and it shall come to pass that the Jews shall have the words of the Nephites, and the Nephites shall have the words of the Jews, and the Nephites and the Jews shall have the words of the lost tribes of Israel. And the lost tribes of Israel shall have the words of the Nephites and the Jews. Verse 14, the last one of this chapter, and it shall come to pass that my people, which are of the house of Israel, shall be gathered home unto the lands of their possessions, and my word also shall be gathered in one. And I will show unto them that fight against my word and against my people who are of the house of Israel, that I am God, and I have covenanted with Abraham that I would remember his seed forever." That's what this is about. This is God saying, look, I have worked with these people for all these hundreds of years. They have rejected me, but I have not rejected them, and my work will continue. And the stick of Judah, the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, the record of witness of Christ, and the stick of Joseph, which is the Book of Mormon, another witness of Jesus Christ, shall come together as they have. So this is a prophecy of the restoration that Ezekiel is seeing here. He's seeing the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and that it shall come as a second witness to the stick of Judah, the Bible, and shall strengthen the witness. And we still have another record to come, as prophesied right here in 2 Nephi 29, that is the record, another witness of Christ that will come from the ten tribes. We are seeing a gathering of the ten tribes. As I've said before, we have all the tribes represented now in the church as members, mostly coming out of Eastern Europe is where we saw those ten tribes, but we don't have that record yet. And that record will come forth from the ten tribes. It will be another witness of Christ's visit to them. Because remember, he had other sheep that he visited 
that he spoke of in the New Testament. Those other sheep were the Nephites that he came to visit and minister to in the new world. But he also spoke to the Nephites and said, there are even more sheep, other sheep still that I go to, and those are the 10 tribes that he went to witness. And they'll have a record of that visit, of that ministry of Christ. Pretty exciting stuff. Now, I'm going to just kind of quickly mention two chapters that are not in our selected readings, but kind of interesting to mention. Those are chapters 38 and 39, where it talks about the Battle of Gog and Magog. Now, we hear these words also from Zephaniah and also from John the Revelator in the book of Revelation. And this is this is kind of, you know, last day's prophecy stuff, because this is the final war against Israel, where all nations are gathered against Israel, or at least a, a multitude of nations. We don't know exactly which nations, but let me just read you something that Bruce R. McConkie wrote about this. This is from Mormon Doctrine by Bruce McConkie. The 38th and 39th chapters of Ezekiel record considerable prophetic detail relative to this great war. It should be noted that it is to take place in the latter years, that it will be fought in the mountains of Israel against those who have been gathered to the land of their ancient inheritance, that the land of Israel shall be relatively unprotected, a land of unwalled villages, it says, that Gog and Magog shall come out of the north parts in such numbers as to cover the land as a cloud, that the Lord will then come and all men shall shake at his presence, that there will be such an earthquake as has never before been known, which will throw down the mountains, that there will be pestilence, blood, fire, and brimstone descend upon the armies, that the forces of Gog and Magog will be destroyed upon the mountains of Israel, that the supper of the great God shall then take place as the beasts and fowls eat the flesh and drink the blood of the fallen ones, and that the house of Israel will be seven months burying the dead, and seven years burning the discarded weapons of war. That's recorded here in Ezekiel. In the light of all this and much more that is prophetically foretold about the final great battles in the Holy Land, is it any wonder that those who are scripturally informed and spiritually enlightened watch world events with great interest as troubles continue to foment in Palestine, Egypt, and the Near East? Now, let me just mention that Mormon Doctrine was published in 1966. So already at that time, Elder McConkie was saying that people were looking to the events that were happening in the Near East around Israel and Egypt and all those places with interest. And that is true. If you were a scriptural scholar, you're kind of aware because you knew these things were prophesied to happen. Now we are much closer to the fulfillment of these prophecies. And there is a lot of interest, I would say, amongst those who are scripturally informed and spiritually enlightened. I hope that includes all of us. I like that phrase. Do you like that? Scripturally informed and spiritually enlightened. That's what God invites us to, to become, is scripturally informed and spiritually enlightened. In other words, as he has said, watch, therefore, that it, meaning the second coming, not overtake thee as a thief in the night. If you are scripturally informed and spiritually enlightened, it won't be that big a surprise, even though no man has to know the day or the hour, and this isn't about trying to predict exactly that time. But we should have an idea of what's going on because the scriptures tell us. And as we've pointed out before, some of these prophecies are fulfilled in ways that are so precise and orderly that it's kind of astonishingly poetic. And if we are scripturally informed and spiritually enlightened, we will recognize these signs that are, that are gathering 
to prepare us so that we will become that righteous Zion people that will have to be on the earth to welcome God in order pure people that can dwell in his presence. Last chapter of this section, although there are other interesting chapters that actually talk about some of the architectural detail about the rebuilding of Solomon's temple. As you may know, the position or the place where Solomon's temple was is now the Dome of the Rock. It's a, it's a mosque with a big golden dome, and you can go and visit it. And I saw it when I was in college visiting uh, Israel with a BYU group. But anyway, there's going to have to be quite the change before you can rebuild that temple because that mosque is going to have to go. And right now, that would not be taken well. So it will be really fascinating to see how those things are fulfilled. But it has been mentioned in some studies of Ezekiel that like this information is going to be important to the Jews in the last days because they will need some of those descriptions of lengths and breadths and specific measurements and so on to rebuild Solomon's temple in the way that is ordained by our God in that place that now houses that, that great mosque. So yeah, things are set up in kind of an exciting way, are they not? And then in chapter 47, it says that waters will come from the temple and flow into the Dead Sea and heal the Dead Sea. That's a beautiful, a beautiful prophecy, isn't it? You know that the Dead Sea is the salt sea, an inland salt sea. So there's no real life in there. I mean, not normal fish and so on. I think it's like brine shrimp or some little creatures like that tiny stuff like we have in the Salt Lake, the Great Salt Lake. But it's not a regular sea with, with fish and living things because, and why is it? It's because the water flows in, but it doesn't flow out. Interestingly, and you probably know this, but there are only two inland lakes like that that are, that are salt seas, dead seas. One is in Israel, and it's where the Sea of Galilee flows into the Dead Sea and is connected by the River Jordan. And there, the Dead Sea is in the south and Galilee is in the north. In, in Utah, it's the reverse. The Salt Sea is in the north. And then it connects to Utah Lake, which is a living lake. And Utah Lake runs into Salt Lake by the River Jordan. So both are connected by a river called Jordan. Just a little trivia in case you may not have run over that lately or run into that lately. And that is prophesied here in Ezekiel as well that waters will come from the temple and heal the Dead Sea. So you wonder if that'll happen in Utah too, but it will certainly happen in the Holy Land. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is fulfilling his prophecies given to his prophets anciently and to prophets today. Are we listening? Are we easy to be entreated? Are we willing to identify good from evil, evil from good? Am I my brother's keeper? I hope so. Are we righteous watchmen who, once ha having been warned, will warn our neighbors, particularly our stewardship in this wonderful network of overlapping stewardships? Or are we shepherds who are actually feeding our flocks? Are we fulfilling our stewardships by teaching the word of the Lord and testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ? This must happen in order for us to gather Israel correctly and completely to become a righteous Zion people. We can do it. We can choose glory and build Zion. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. Take care.